We're talking about love, of course, and uh, we're now at the point where we're looking at what does love look like uh, in a real kind of practical way. Let's, let's break it down further. We talked about love and the knowledge of good and evil. We talked about love and judgment. Now let's just talk about love. What does love look like? And we're going to be centering our, th- our thinking on uh, 1 Corinthians 13. And the uh, attribute, the aspect of love we're going to be looking at this morning is the one that I have the hardest time with. And it is love is patient. Love is patient. Would you, would you hurry up and get to the point? Um, there are some messages that I preach out of my strength, you know, where I, I've kind of like got that one under my belt. There are other messages where I preach out of my weakness, and this is one of them. And so I want you to know that if this is a convicting message for you, uh, I share your pain. Uh, but we need to hear, love is patient. I want to look at a, a number of passages and then end up with 1 Corinthians 13, which is sort of the, the bedrock of what we're um, getting at here this morning. Galatians 5.22, by contrast, Paul says, and contrasting this with the works of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Everybody say, patience, kindness, generosity, and faithfulness. 1 Thessalonians 5, we urge you, beloved, to admonish the idlers. Remember, Paul's talking, as always, in a house church context. And so he's saying those idle people in your house church, those people who don't do anything, those freeloaders, admonish them. Do something. Admonish the idlers. Encourage the faint-hearted, those who are, who are scared and nervous and anxious about everything. Help the weak, whether it's physically weak or the mentally weak, you help them. And everybody... Be patient with all of them. And all your admonishing and all your instruction and, and all your confrontation, exercise patience. Colossians chapter 3. Clothe yourself with the new self. This is the self, uh, that you, the identity that you have in Christ Jesus. Uh, the self that is defined in Christ Jesus, as opposed to the old self, which was th- that you inherited from mom and dad and the pattern of this world, the media and all of that. All the things you thought you were, you put off that. That's the old self. The new self is who you are because of what Jesus did. Clothe yourself with that, Paul says, which is being renewed in knowledge. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Romans 12, 2, according to the image of its creator. As chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourself. There's that term again. This is another way of saying, put on the new self. Here's what the new self looks like. Clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and and patience. 1 Corinthians 13. We've read this a number of times. I get blown away every time I look at this again. Here's an abbreviated version of it. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and even of angels, good. And if I have prophetic powers, outstanding. And understand all mysteries and all knowledge. Extremely impressive. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains. Fantastic. And if I give away all my possessions and if I hand over my body so that I may boast. But do not have love. I am nothing. Love, Paul begins his discourse. Love is patient. Love is patient. Father, uh, God, uh, use this message to make us outrageous lovers, Christ-like lovers, passionate lovers, people who have got, Lord, a, uh, uh, a disposition to love that, that uh, the world takes notice of, Lord, because it's an uh, unworldly kind of love. It's, it's, it's Christ-like. Father, uh, create in us a heart that loves like this. Above all else, create in us this heart. And use this, this, this message, Lord, to move us uh, further in that direction, Lord. 
Words can't do it. We don't trust in words, Lord. I can't even talk myself into this. I can't talk anyone else into it. I'm not going to try. But, Lord, I'll just open my mouth, and we ask that you would infuse what comes out with your spirit and your authority to change us, to make us radical kingdom people who love outrageously like you loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, love is patient. Let's uh, look at the context of 1 Corinthians 13 uh, to start off with. Um, 1 Corinthians 13, in case you didn't notice, occurs between 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Profound. Uh, And what's significant about that is this. 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 are about the spiritual gifts, what Paul calls the pneumatikoi or the chrismata. Uh, These are supernatural gifts uh, distinct from other kinds of gifts. They're gifts like speaking in tongues, which is the ability to speak in a foreign language that you never learned. And the interpretation of tongues, which is a supernatural ability to understand what someone who's speaking in tongues is saying. Or, or a prophetic word or wisdom of knowledge, having a piece of knowledge that you didn't learn on your own. God just gave it to you. And, and, and the working of miracles and things like that. Supernatural gifts, wonderful gifts. But the problem is that the Corinthians were abusing them, or they at least were not exercising them in a loving way. Uh, the gifts were becoming sort of an end in and of themselves. So sandwiched between two chapters that deal with the spiritual gifts is this chapter, this amazing chapter, this radical chapter on love. And what it tells us is this. It's possible to do a good thing, to, to be practicing a good thing, and do it without love. And if you do it without love, it's absolutely nothing. It's worthless. It's zero. In fact, and this sort of boggles my mind, it's possible to do a supernatural thing, an inspired thing, and do it without love. And if you do this supernatural, inspired thing without love, it still is nothing. It's an amazing thing. It's sobering to me when I, when I think of this. Uh, a lot of times we're inclined to sort of ask the question, how are we doing? And we want to feel okay. Are, are, we, are, we, are we okay where we're at? And a lot of the things that Christians look at to do that are things like, well, do I have the supernatural gifts? And if I have the supernatural gifts, I must be doing okay. Or at least do I have one or two of the fruit of the Spirit? And if I do, then I must be doing okay. Or am I in, involved in certain kinds of ministry? Am I, am I doing good behaviors? Am I sharing Christ with some people? And there's a lot of things that we look at sometimes to feel okay. But Paul is saying here that it's possible to have those things and they are good. In fact, it's possible to have those things and they are inspired. And yet, it's possible to have them and not have love. And if you have them but don't have love, then they're altogether worthless. They're not just falling a little bit short, they're altogether worthless. It's sobering to me when I think of the, the, the reality that a lot of times churches ask the question, are we doing okay? And we look at things like, is the church growing? How many numbers of people are there? How's the finances doing? Have we moved into a new building? How are our programs running? You know, and do we have enough volunteers? And, and there's a place for that kind of thinking, I, I, I'm sure. But, but uh, it, they're not a criteria to assess whether or not you're really getting done what needs to get done, because Paul says... You can do the good thing and you can do the inspiring thing. In fact, it can be a supernatural thing. But if it's not done out of love, with a motivation for love, for the purpose of furthering love, it's altogether worthless. That is so radical and so different from the way we normally think. The one criteria to look at as you're assessing how it's going is is love. Are Are you growing in your love? And is your ministry 
uh, furthering love, uh, revealing the love of God for people and, and, and growing them to be lovers of God and lovers of other people. That's the one criteria that ultimately counts. The danger, and it, it comes out in, in the church at Corinth, the danger is, that, is this. It's a lot easier to look at external stuff than it is to look at motivation. In fact, it's more interesting to talk about tongues. And it's easier to look at tongues, and it's more impressive and, and wowing, as it were, to, to look at the, the supernatural gifts. And so it's easier to feel okay because you speak in tongues or you have a word of knowledge. And I'm all for that, by the way. I, 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 I uh, ask God to help me walk in that. I practice some of those gifts. I'm for that. But uh, those are not the criteria for how you're doing in the Christian walk. The danger is that you can become kind of wowed by that because those are impressive things. Walking in the power of God, uh, being used supernaturally by God, those are, those are things that kind of catch our attention. It's more exciting sometimes to preach about that kind of stuff than it is to preach on love. But the reality is that you can do the good thing and even the inspiring thing, even the supernatural thing, and do it without love. And if you do it without love, then it's altogether worthless. Sometimes people get enamored, even intoxicated, with, with things like this, the, 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 the spiritual gifts. Uh, you know, some people, when they first come into it, uh, you know, they, they, they learn about speaking in tongues or a word of knowledge, and it's great stuff. I'm all for it. But it, it, it becomes sort of a eureka experience for them. This is it. This is the real Christianity. We have discovered it. This is what's always been missing. And that becomes sort of the center of their walk with God. This is it. But you see, it's possible to have that and not have the one thing that counts, which is love. So that is not it. Love is it. You see, and, and what needs to happen is for that to be used with love. Sometimes people get in, involved in certain doctrines. They, they, they really get an insight which they believe is true and a, a way of understanding things that just makes sense to them. And understandably, they get excited about it. A crusade that they might go on, a cause that they're for. And, and in, their, in their thinking, this becomes sort of the center of things. This is it. This is what's always been missing. We're here to proclaim it. But you see... I don't care how true the thinking is, how wonderful the insight is, how just the cause is, if it's not motivated by love, for the purpose of furthering love, it's altogether worthless. And that what's real is it's possible to have all that good stuff, all that true stuff, all that insightful stuff, all that supernatural stuff, and not have love. And if that's happening, then what you're doing it's altogether worthless in terms of building the kingdom. It really is an, a, a radical, radical statement. That's why Paul says in Colossians, above all, clothe yourself with love. Above everything else that you do, clothe yourself with love. Because this is the one thing that's going to make everything that you do meaningful. Lose this one, put it in second or third place, and uh, you're in danger of being involved in a meaningless activity. That's why John says in 1 John, here's the criteria. We know we've passed from death to life. How? Well... One way of knowing that you've passed from death to life is you've got life. And what God's life looks like is love. That's how you know. It, it's a real thing. You're walking in that love. What Paul is getting at here in 1 Corinthians 13 is this. You've got a lot of supernatural stuff going on. Wonderful. He does, he, he's all for that. He says, I speak in tongues more than you all. But what he's telling the Corinthians and what he's telling us is that we need to always check our motivation. Are we keeping the center really the center? Uh, and, and what 1 Corinthians 13 is about is, is giving us like a gift, giving us flags to look for in terms of assessing whether we're walking in love or not. If you're walking in love, there's some things you're going to see and some things you're not going to see. If you're walking in love, you'll be a patient person. So if you're not patient, that's an indicator to you uh, that, that, that love isn't happening, at least not to that degree. 
What Paul's not doing, now notice this, he's not giving us a to-do list. Go out and try to be patient. Go out and try to be kind. Go out and and try not to be rude. He's not giving us a to-do list. He's not here focusing on the behavior. Because Paul's not interested in prettying up how we look. What Paul's interested in is changing the kind of people that we are. What he wants us to do is going back to the center and asking, are we walking in love? Are we getting our life from God? Uh, We often read the the text of the Bible like it's one more ethical list, one more to-do list. But behavior is not the issue. It's never really the issue. The cause of the behavior is the issue, and that's what Paul's getting at here. Here's what love looks like. So if if you're seeing something's missing, the goal here is not to now give you a hurdle that you have to jump through. The goal is to check your heart and, 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 and to get more love. And as I said before, this is the area that I think I, uh, I am, it's one of my weakest areas. I, I think I'm growing in this, but you'd have to ask people who work with me and, and my wife who lives with me, whether, am I becoming more patient, honey? I, I, do you see a little bit of improvement here? She says yes. All right, good, thank you. Uh, you know, the funny thing is this, before I was a Christian, I, I, I was a very patient person. After I became a Christian, I became impatient. Isn't that weird? But see, here's the thing. I, I, I several years ago, learned why. And it's because I, I grew up with a real intense awareness of death. Uh, my mother died, and maybe that's what did it to me or whatever. But I was always aware of our finitude. I, I walked with that, that awareness of death. And what it did be, for me before I was a Christian is it made me believe that everything was a waste of time. This is all a waste of time. We end up dead. It makes no difference. And it's pretty easy to be patient when you're a nihilist. I, 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 nothing mattered. When I became a Christian... Now something really, really mattered, and I still had that awareness of death. But now it had, the opposite, it, now it had this, uh, this effect of saying, I have to cram as much meaningful stuff into every minute of my life as possible. So if there's one thing that, that wasn't meaningful, I, I, had, uh, I, I grew impatient with it. Now, it's good to have a sense of urgency about life. That's good. And it's good to have a sense of passion about life. That's good. But it's not good to live in impatience. And see, the difference is this. I was trying to cram everything into my agenda rather than realizing that the goal is to cram everything that I'm about into God's agenda. And God is patient. He doesn't work with this uh, grim reaper in front of his face. God's patient. So, so it's an area that I uh, really need to grow in. Let's talk about patience now. Let's, let's, let's hunker down. I'm going to teach you some Greek. The word for patience in Greek is makrothumia. Makrothumia. Macro means long or distant. And thumia means hot, referring to hot anger. Thumia. And so it really means you're slow to anger. You're slow to anger, macrothumia. Now let's break it down further. And, and follow me on this. Sometimes when I, I give out Greek words, I don't do it very often because usually it's not that important, but in this case it is. And sometimes people just check out and say, oh, it's all Greek to me. Uh, but, but don't do that. Follow this. This is going to be very, very important. There's three different words for, for anger in, in, in Greek. There's orge. Orge is the ordinary word for anger. It just means that you're upset uh, because something that you value was devalued by someone else or maybe by yourself. Okay, that's all it means. It's an ordinary thing. It's a normal emotion. It's not sin. It's perfectly okay. You get angry. If you value uh, your car a whole lot and somebody comes along with a key and scrapes it all to pieces, you're going to experience anger because what you value was devalued. If, if uh, your, your new hairdo is of great value to you and getting recognition for it is of great value, then someone who doesn't notice it is devaluing you and you're going to be angry about that. Okay? Uh, that's a normal emotion given what you value. Uh, Jesus valued the temple as the house of God. Others didn't. They turned it into a Jesus supermarket. Not a Jesus supermarket, but a religious supermarket. And that made Jesus angry. 
Anger, orge, is not sin. Now, maybe what you value is carnal, or maybe the amount of value you put on it is carnal. That's maybe sin. But the fact that you get angry when someone devalues it is not sin. That's just an ordinary, normal thing. Orge is okay. Everybody say, orge is okay. Orge is okay. Orge is okay. That's going to become important here in a second. There's a second word for, for uh, anger. It's, it's peroskismos. Peroskismos. And this word literally is a combination of para and orge. There's that word orge. Now, orge is okay, but para orge is not okay. Para means down under or submerged. Down under, down under anger, uh, submerged anger, is not natural to us. It happens when we swallow our anger. You're angry about something, but instead of being angry about it, you swallow it, you stuff it, you put on a veneer of being okay. You become passive-aggressive. We do this a lot here in professional nice Minnesota, don't we? And, and, you're, and, and we think that is patience, you see, and this is what's sick. In the name of patience, we, we do para-orge. We, we, we swallow our anger. And what happens is that the anger stays, but it's no longer directed at the object or the person that it was originally about, not only to them. It it starts to pollute our entire system. It's not natural to swallow your orge and make it para-orge. This is often translated bitterness, because when you swallow anger, when you swallow orge, it starts to make you bitter. It pollutes your entire system. In one way or another, it begins to, to, to be a pollutant in your life. Then there's a third word for anger, which is thumos. Thumos means hot. We get the word thermo from it. Thermometer is the meter of heat, okay? You you, you measure heat. This is explosive uh, anger. This is sometimes translated rage. This is when you pop, all right? And that's almost always a destructive thing. That is not a godly thing. Uh, Well, there's a time where God sometimes experiences it, but in his case, it's always just. For human beings, it's almost always destructive. So we've got three different kinds of anger there. Now, here's what I want us to see. Very, very clear. Oh, yeah, there's a passage here that, that really uh, fleshes this out. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says, Be angry, or gay, but do not sin. Okay, so being angry is not a matter of sin. You just calmly say, That really makes me mad. There, I'm mad. <laughs> You're angry, but you don't sin. Then he says, Don't let the sun go down on your para or gay, on your peroskismos. Don't let the sun go down on it. Don't go to bed with it. Don't pretend like you're happy and pretend like everything's okay when you're not. And you go to bed with it because now it becomes para-orge. And now, he says, you give the devil a room to maneuver. You give the devil a foothold. You make room for the devil. The devil is the prince of darkness. Wherever there's concealment, wherever there's untruth, wherever there's duplicity between the inside and the outside, we give him room to maneuver. He gets in there and begins to work the cancer of bitterness in our life, and it's not pretty. What we need to see then is this. Orge, if it's not dealt with up front, turns into para-orge where we swallow it, it begins to pollute us, and sooner or later it results in thumos. You're a, you're a seething kettle, and before long you're going to pop. Okay, It just comes out one way or another. You're, you're, you explode, you rage. And it could be something really little, but your rage really isn't about that, though maybe you think it's about that, but it's about what happened three weeks ago that you've been sleeping on all this time, you see? And it seizes and it boils, and boom, you pop. Or what's even worse is if you don't pop, because now there are some people who are so good at swallowing anger that they not only can swallow orge, they can swallow thumos. And when you swallow that rage, now it gets directed inward. And, and things like self-hatred and self-loathing and, and, uh, and, and depression uh, and phobias can come out of that. It does all sorts, because we're doing something that's unnatural. 
Orgy is normal and it's meant to be dealt with up front. When you're angry, you say, I'm angry, and you deal with it right there. Don't go to bed with it. What concerns me is this. Sometimes Christians, in fact, often Christians think that orge is the opposite of patience. Having orge is something ungodly, and it's the opposite of patience. So they swallow it. And then they think that doing para orge is patience. You're patient if you can really stuff it. The more passive-aggressive you are, the more patient you are. Which is really to say, the sicker you are, the more patient you are. And so in the name of being godly, we do a very ungodly thing. What we need to understand is that orge is not the antithesis of patience, and para-orge is not the equivalent of patience. What Paul is getting at, what, what patience is, it's not primarily about external behavior. He's not interested in how things look. What he's interested in is, is, is uh, uh, what kind of person are we? Okay, he, what, 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 what God is aiming at is not a person who knows how to uh, put on a certain kind of external behavior. He's not aiming at a person who knows how to stuff their anger very well. That, that, that is sin, and it's destructive. What God is aiming at is a person who is uh, a certain kind of person who really is slow to anger, not who knows how to act like they're not angry when they are, but one who genuinely is slow to anger. It's not about external behavior, which is why it doesn't do any good to stand up here and, and say, you ought to be, you should be, you better be, God's going to get you if you're not patient, or you better be, you got to be, God's going to get you if you're not kind, or whatever, and to turn the descriptions of love into a set of uh, uh, behavioral hurdles you got to jump over. Because if you do that, what, what we'll end up doing is training people how to fake it. You learn how to crank out a certain kind of behavior, and all, see, so you can do that. You can do, you can act patient when you're not, you can act kind when you're not, but if the reality of love isn't what's motivating, Paul said it's altogether worthless. In fact, it may be positively damaging. You see how that works. What God wants is for people who grow in love. If you get the love, if, if you're walking in love, Paul is saying, there will be patience. But learning how to act patient isn't what gives you love. You can't, can't put the cart before the horse. This is why Paul says that if you live in love, you fulfill the whole law. If, if love is the center, you're going to end up doing the whole law. All the, all the things you're supposed to do, you'll end up doing. But it's possible to do the whole law and not have love. Because you do it as an external behavior. What God wants is to uh, 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 people who are, are a certain kind of person, who are the way they process the world, the way they think about things, the way they see other people, in fact makes them patient. And the kind of people that do that are people who walk in agape love. Walk in agape love. Now, now let's ask this, this, this further question. Let's, go, let's, let's dig down one more layer. What is it? What is the connection between agape love and patience? I, I don't think we normally make that connection. We think patience is one thing and love is another. But Paul here is saying love is patient. What's the connection there? To get at it, let's ask this question. Think of a time where you were impatient. Maybe it was fairly recently. Maybe it was a while ago. But enter that in your mind. Get a picture of that in your mind, the person that you were impatient with. And now ask the question, what was going on in your mind when you were impatient with them? And in all likelihood, what was not going on in your mind is, this person has unsurpassable worth. Lord, I bless them. Thank you for their unsurpassable worth. Lord God, you died for them, and I agree with you. They have unsurpassable worth. What was more likely going on in your mind, if you'll examine it and get introspective about it, is something like this. This person is not fitting into my plan. (laughs) Think about it. This person is not fitting into my agenda. A little while ago, I was late for a meeting. I was supposed to meet someone for lunch, and I got behind a a young lady, not a young lady, an old lady, who has unsurpassable worth. (laughs) 
But, but, but I was in a hurry. And this person was driving so very, very carefully. Uh, you know, the, the, kind of, the kind of person that, you know, four blocks ahead of time, she starts slowing down for the green light just in case it turns yellow. Don't do that. Yellow means speed up, baby. You can make it. You know? <laughs> and this person was like slowing down. It's like, no, 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 no. And then you come to a stop sign and they look several times both ways. And if there's a car four blocks away, they don't, they don't go through the intersection just in case that person happens to be blind and might run into them when their car stalls. It's like, no, 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 no. Come on, I'm in a hurry. See, I've got an agenda and you're not fitting into my agenda. I want to get there on time. And, and you're supposed to know that about me. And, and so why are you driving the speed limit for crying out loud? No one drives the speed limit. Even the cops give us a 10% buffer zone, don't you cops? I mean, uh, I've always assumed that. And uh, come on, speed it up. And you can't get past her, can't get around her, so you're just stuck there going, that's impatience. That's impatience, you see. Impatience is always about, notice this, it goes back to Genesis 3, the fall. We put ourselves in the center, things revolve around us, we have an agenda and want people and things and circumstances to fit into our agenda, and when they don't, we get frustrated, and that's called impatience. We impose a supposed to on people. You're supposed to drive faster. You're supposed to go through the yellow light. You know, you're supposed to be able to tie your shoes when you're seven years old. You're supposed to be able to do algebra by the time you go to college or, or at some point in your life. You know, you're supposed to be able to read better than this. You're supposed to be more mature than this after you've been a Christian for three years. What's wrong with you? You're supposed to do this. You're supposed to do that. And, and when people don't meet up with our supposed tos, well, then, then, then we get very angry. That's called impatience. Come on. Think it. It's about me. It's about me. Do it my way. Do it at my speed. Do it how I want it. Do it when I want it. And when it doesn't happen, the gulf between our agenda and reality is called impatience. See how we're imposing our standard. The standard, by the way, as with everything else, when we put ourselves in the center, and now we eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and define things in terms of how it meets our agenda, the standard is always self-serving. It, it, it's, it's bent to, uh, to favor us. And we always do this. We don't have trouble being patient with people in areas that we need patience on, do we? We're full of understanding then. Uh, it, it's when we have things that we don't care about that are taking up our time or delaying us, or things that we're good at and another person's you know, struggling in, that's when we find it hard to be patient. My daughter inherited my gene for losing things. Uh, and my, my daughter didn't, I, God bless her, she just can lose anything. Uh, you know, she, she loses her keys all the time, uh, loses checks that the, the Eternal Revenue Center back for taxes. She loses that. And, uh, you know, and, and the only solution, finally, she found a way to not lose her keys, and that's never take them out of the ignition, which maybe isn't. I hope there are no thieves in the audience right now, or, uh, you know, if you are, I hope you didn't hear that. But, uh, you know, it, it's, she loses stuff. And I think Shelly, who tends, my wife, who tends to be very organized, uh, she has trouble, like, understanding why that, what is so hard about remembering to put it, the keys in the same place all the time? She's asked me that question numerous, numerous times. And so I think she would tend to be more impatient towards Danae, but I'm full of compassion. Danae, I understand. <laughs> keys disappear right from under your nose. I know what that's like. I lose checks all the time. Or I lose to use checks. No one gives them to me anymore. <laughs> I don't get paid anymore. They go directly to my wife. You know, see, it's, I, have, I have an easy time being patient with people who lose things who are scatterbrains because I need the patience. But you take an area that I don't care much about or an area that I'm good at and they're struggling with, and now it's going to be a little harder to be patient. Shopping, for example. 
I don't get shopping. I, I don't understand it. It's not part of my world. The purpose for shopping is to go in and get what you came there to get and get out as fast as possible. Amen, guys? All right, men. Let's go. Once a year, I know this. It's on my schedule. They, they, have, a, they have a sale on, on turtlenecks at Walmart. And so I, you know, $7 a turtleneck. Here you go. And I love turtlenecks, so I go there every fall as soon as it starts getting a little cold. Walk in there. You just pick out every possible color that's your size. Get two of the black kids that look better on you, and you wear them out faster. And then you walk out of the store. It takes 12 minutes. What's the problem with that? <laughs> Shopping should take 12 minutes. But see, Shelly, uh, Shelly likes to shop. She likes to compare. She likes to go with a... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We could do this, we could do this we, we, This one would work or this one might work and, and Oh, here's a third possibility She likes to consider her options That's shopping And I'm trying to like mind read Whenever she asks me a question Okay, what, what, what answer does she want to hear? <laughs> yeah, I try to read her face Oh yeah, you're right, that's a bad one Oh, that's a very good one Oh, no, no, wrong yeah, That was a bad one That's a good one You know, I, it's like I want to get Guys, is this a male thing or what? But the minute I step into a store, I get tired. I mean, profoundly tired. It's just like, oh, the fatigue. It's terrible. Isn't that true? Shelly can go shopping with a friend. Uh, she does this once well. She goes out shopping. And by the way, I got her permission to talk on her this way, so don't think I'm going to get in trouble. Uh, she goes shopping with a friend, and they'll spend all day long shopping and come back with one little $2 trinket. And that was their idea of a fun day. It's my definition of hell. You know? It's like, I, I'm going to walk through with God just so I can avoid eternal shopping. So we have, we, we, it's easy for us to be patient in areas that, that, that we ourselves need patience on, but in areas that don't concern us, that are taking up our time, that's what it really uh, pulls on us, you see. It's always curved. That's why, usually, Christians tend not to judge other people in sins that they themselves are guilty of or have struggled with, but it's in the areas that they've conquered. You know, they, they ask, well, look it, I got over that so fast. What's wrong with you? You know, here you are, five years of Christian, still struggling with that. It took me two days. What's the problem here, you see? We always judge out of our success. And see, and we always impose the posters out of our success. And when we do that, now note this, it is not love because we're not ascribing unsurpassable worth. Usually we're, we're detracting from the person's worth. Uh, uh, impatience almost always results to some degree in a damaging thing for people. What's wrong with you? Are you stupid? You can't read fast enough? You're not mature enough? You're not trying hard enough? What's the deal here? My grandmother had a, had a supposed to. Uh, the supposed to was that uh, when you're three years old, you're supposed to stop wetting the bed. And my grandmother was the one who was taking care of me at this point in my life, and I didn't stop wetting the bed when I was three. So when I was four or five, she started, you know, kind of giving me these undercurrents. Other kids stop wetting the bed when they're three. What's the problem here? I can't believe you're still wet the bed. Uh, you know, uh, uh, maybe we should put diapers on you again. That's what we'll do. We'll put diapers on you. And then she came up with an even better idea. We'll tie a string around your penis, and, and then, then when you have to go to the bathroom, it'll fall off, and you'll be a girl. And, and for a five-year-old boy, you'd rather be a porcupine, roadkill porcupine, than a girl. I mean, that's, and see, it, it, it's just, a, it, you know, because she was impatient with this. And it jaded me. For one thing, I was afraid to go to sleep at night, thinking my penis was going to fall off. Even worse, I thought girls were all ex-boys who went to bed. You know, it's like, that's how you got girls. I asked my sister one time, we were taking a bath together when we were five years old, and I just went, did it hurt? And I was like... I, 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 totally, totally. 
And then my stepmother kind of went along with that later on in life when she took over the care. I, I was still wetting the bed when I was 10, 10 years old. Uh, you know, not as frequently, but it was still there. And uh, she said, you know what we'll do? We'll, we'll hang out the bed sheet out the front window. And that way everybody will know that Greg still wets the bed. Now, like, what is that supposed to do? Do you think that I wake up at 2 in the morning and I, I just say, hey, I think I'll pee the bed because I'm too lazy to go to the bathroom? It's like, you know, the problem isn't something you just can try hard to get out of. I'm asleep. I can't. I don't wake up. You think I want to do this? So the threats aren't going to do anything other than make you feel really, really miserable, like something's really, really wrong. Someone asked me at the last service, well, have you stopped wetting the bed? And the answer is yes. <laughs> but even if I didn't, are you going to put the, a supposed to on me? You see, it, it's damaging. The reality of impatience is that we are imposing supposed tos on, on people, and it's damaging because what's real here is this. People are profoundly different. We grow in different ways. We struggle with different things. We're good at different things. We learn at different paces. Uh, you know, it, we're just profoundly different. And patience is a matter of giving people space to be unlike you. Patience is a matter of affirming the unsurpassable worth of someone who's, ra- who, who's very, very different than you are. But when we're living in the center, it's very hard for us to do that. We want to universalize our supposed tos and impose them on other people, and that creates impatience. Let me, let me begin to wrap this up with two fundamental questions. Question number one, as we struggle with patience, and this is designed to try to kind of break the addiction on, on, on our imposing supposed tos on people. Number one, who made us the judge of supposed tos? Think about it. That is the result of our putting ourselves in the center of the garden. You see? It goes back to Genesis 3, if you were here while we talked about that. And we're playing God as we impose supposed to on other people. In truth, our job, remember, the central job of our life is to replicate God's love towards us, towards other people. To, to, to love and ascribe unsurpassable worth to people. That's our central job. He hasn't called us to be the judge of supposed to imposing that on people. Now, 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 let me qualify this a little bit. First, there are some situations where the social structure is such. You're the boss and a person's working for you. Part of your job is to say, here's what you're supposed to do, and you consider whether or not they're measuring up to the supposed to. That's a different thing. That's an employment situation. There are also times where, where love, where it's dysfunctional to be too patient, if I can put it that way. Though what I'm talking about there is very different than, than the kind of patience the Bible means. Um, there's times where love has to confront and love does draw a line in the sand. When it's in the interest of the other person to do that, and there are cases like that. For example, if you're dealing with a rageaholic or an abusive person or an alcoholic, uh, there, to just keep on cutting them slack and giving them more rope to hang themselves, that is not the loving thing to do. It's not loving to them, it's not loving to you, and it's probably not loving to the family. And so sometimes love in wisdom has to arise up and out of love confront the person and draw a line in the sand, hold reality in their face because they're not living in a real world, and say, here are the consequences. If this doesn't stop now, here's the consequences. Love sometimes does that. But the difference is this. That's a godly thing because that's not inconsistent with love. You are, you are affirming the worth of the person and uh, uh, playing hardball with them. That's what they need. But most of the time when we are impatient, it has nothing to do with that. It's not about the other person. It's not about ascribing worth to them. You're not thinking of them. You're thinking of yourself. This is my agenda, my needs, my plans, and you're not fitting into them. I want it my way right now, how I want it, when I want it. And they're not meeting that, so you become impatient. But, but there, are, there are exceptions, and you need to know the, the wisdom of God in applying it. Who made us judge of the supposed to? Secondly, here's a powerful question. Has not God been infinitely patient with each one of us? 
You know, God is the one who can impose this, supposed to, and as a matter of fact, he could have imposed it with the first sin we ever committed, and it would have been just. Uh, every year we have lived has been an exercise of patience on God's part. And even after we're believers, God is patient with us. I bet, I bet there are areas of your life that God is patient with you on even right now. I don't care how far along you are in the Christian life. I bet you're not perfect, and God is patient with you about that. He works from the inside. He's always trying to grow us, but he does it very patiently, you see. And the job of life, the central job of life, is simply to give away what you have received. You give away the love that you have received. We're also... Another way of saying that same thing is give away the patience that you have received. He's infinitely patient with you. Extend patience. Paul says this in Romans 2. You have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others, when you impose your supposed to on them, always in a self-serving way. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Do you despise the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience? When we don't give what we have received, we're really despising the thing that we have received. Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God is patient with you for the purpose of turning you around. You don't turn around to get the patience. The patience is there first in order to get us to turn around in our life. So also, we're called to extend patience to other people. And out of that love, have them turn around rather than drawing a line in the sand to get them to fit into our agenda. In all of this, hear me now. I'm not saying now let's go out and try to be patient externally. Try not to say what you really want to say. When you have orge, deal with it as soon as possible. Do it calmly, do it lovingly, but do it. Deal with orge. Uh, patience is not pedagismos. It's not stuffing it. This isn't about the behavior. It's something far more profound than that. It's what kind of person are we? How do we move into this? When we move into love. And how do we move into love? It looks like this. It only happens when you die to yourself as judge and center. When you die to that root of all evil we found in Genesis 3. Stop making yourself the center. As long as you're living as a center and think the world revolves around you. And in your conscious mind, you probably deny that. But look deeper than that. In fact, does the world revolve around you? Including religion. Including God. Uh, Are you using them to meet your needs? If that is the case, you'll never be patient in a biblical sense. You can't be. You'll always be imposing supposed to. That's your only strategy for getting life. You need to, as Paul says, crucify yourself daily. Die to the idea that you are the center. Which means, number two, live to God as center. Make him the center of your life, the source of your life, the source of your significance, so that all your needs are being met, and your most profound needs are being met by your relationship with Jesus Christ. You orbit him. He doesn't orbit you. And out of the fullness of that, then comes the third thing. Now you're in a position where you can begin to live in love. The behavior follows the orientation. But the question always goes back to our orientation. Are you living in love? Praise God. Uh, will you close your eyes and, and just pray here? I'm going to do this very quick, but I, I, I want to ask really two questions if I have time for it. Question number one is this. Are you here this morning and you have never, maybe for the first time you're recognizing that God is patient with you, and he's been leading you and guiding you, but you've never said yes to him. You've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. I'm not saying you haven't gone to church. I'm not saying you haven't been a good person. That's, but are you related to Jesus Christ? It, does he have your heart? And if you want to do that right here and right now, I want you to stand up. Just right where you are, stand up. And I'm going to pray with you from up here. We just, if you want to receive Christ as Lord and Savior, you want to surrender your life to him, stand up here. Let's just take 30 seconds to do this. Uh, Look around the auditorium. If anyone's here who's never done that, this is how you get in on that love that we're talking about. He died for you on the cross of Calvary. You say, I'm a sinner, and I need your grace. I surrender my life to you. 
Anybody here want to do that? Just stand up. Be bold before the Lord. Be bold before the Lord and uh, um, take a stand back there. Praise God. Several people standing up. Anybody else? Just stand up and you're saying, I need Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Maybe once upon a time you said a prayer, but you haven't been living for him. Reconsecrate your life uh, before him. Over here, several people. Back there. Wonderful. Wonderful. Holy Spirit, be moving here. Take 15 more seconds. Anybody else just want to stand up and say, yes, I want to surrender my life to Jesus Christ. Uh, give The Holy Spirit's pulling at you perhaps right now. Surrender your life to him. Just give him your all. Amen. Amen. Wonderful. You folks who are standing, would the people around you just maybe, it would be okay if they just uh, put their hand towards you or even kind of put it on your shoulder. And we want to pray with you and for you. And, and, it's, and I want all of us to join these people in praying this prayer. Say it like a wedding vow uh, as, as you surrender your life to him. Say, Heavenly Father, you are so patient. I have not lived for you, and yet you have loved me. You love me so much. You sent Jesus Christ to die in my place. I now believe that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. And so I ask you, Lord Jesus, come into my life, wash me, cleanse me, change me, live in me, and help me live for you my whole life. Thank you, Lord, for saving me, for loving me, and for changing me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise God. Welcome to the kingdom, you guys. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Wonderful. That's wonderful. Wonderful. Amen. Amen. Those, those who, raised, who, who stood up here this morning, could I ask you, when we're dismissed, to come up here and talk to this man up here. It's so important that you just get a little bit of information at the start of your walk. And any questions you have, he'll be happy to answer. And he has some material that he wants to give you for free that will help you get going in the Christian life. The rest of us, I want to leave us with this question. Where, who are the people in your life that you have trouble being impatient with? And think about that in your mind right now. And ask the Lord to show you, first of all, wisdom. Is this something that you should confront? Or is it something that you need to let go? Let go of an agenda that you have that you're trying to get them to conform to. And I, I, I want you to be asking the Lord to reveal to you how you impose agendas on other people that make you impatient. And will you be willing to release, to release that agenda to God and to let him be the center and not yourself? So, Heavenly Father, as we go out of this place, I pray, Lord, that you would be revealing to us the areas where our self is still at the center and we impose oughts on other people. Father, free us from this. Free us to be outrageously loving like Jesus Christ, Lord. Live in us and live through us to let go of the agendas of our life, to give people space to be different. We give you the praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen.